Welcome to the Bad for Business podcast, brought to you by the Founders Fund. The Bad for Business podcast uncovers the real unfiltered stories behind the success of unconventional, disruptive, and downright bad for business entrepreneurs. I'm your host and badass entrepreneur in charge, Vivian Kay. If you're interested in joining a community of bad for business women identifying founders who also get access to funding, mentorship, and education for your business, visit us at foundersfund.ca to become a member. Mark LeFleur is the CEO of True Local. True Local connects you to high-end, locally sourced meat products delivered right to your doorstep across Ontario. True Local ships overnight on dry ice, so your box will stay frozen during delivery, even when you're not at home when your box arrives. True Local's customizable plans are commitment-free, so you can skip, pause, or cancel at any time. No strings attached. Mark and I chatted about how schools aren't built for today's entrepreneurs and how he used his innate skills for sales to go from a door-to-door meat salesman to a high-end meat subscription business. Take a listen. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm great. I think, you know, all things considered, there's nothing to complain about. Christmas is right around the corner. So some, some good news coming down the pipe. Ooh, what good news you got coming down the pipe? I'm just happy that it's Christmas. You know, it's been a, <laughs> it's been a long year. I think that uh, this is a little bit of positivity that people need right now. I, yeah, you, could, you guys can't see me, but I'm all decked out in my Santa gear. I got gingerbread shirt. I got snowflakes on my pants. It's just, I got a Santa hat on. It's just the whole thing. I'm just mm. making it a whole thing. Got to get in the spirit. <laughs> so Mark, take us back to when you were a kid. Like what was life like? Where did you grow up? Family structure, all that jazz. Yeah, you know, uh, early early life was pretty interesting. You know, I was definitely um, I was actually actually I started off I was homeschooled, so I was homeschooled um, all the way up until grade eight, um, and then ended up going to a, a French uh, Catholic school in Cornwall, uh, Cornwall, Ontario. And uh, you know, I was I was always just considered a troublemaker. Like I was constantly suspended. Um, you know, I went to a wait, you were suspended classes. at homeschool or no, <laughs> when so you when started I, going to school. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> when I started going back to school um in grade eight, you know, I was always getting into trouble. Um, you know, I think they they tried to hit me with the ADD and all that fun stuff. Um, and I think at the time, you know, when you're growing up and everyone's kind of telling you things like, oh, you know, you gotta pay more attention or you've gotta get more um serious about your grades and things like that. And it kind of starts to weigh on you, right? And especially considering, um, for me, it wasn't that I was unable to do these things. I just didn't really enjoy them. So I think that kind of shaped a little bit of who I was at the time. Um, you know, had a, a small group of friends. Um, this is, once again, before high school. So I had a small group of friends, you know, huge gamer, um, you know, big, you know, I think, I guess, going way, way back, you know, I was always kind of into anything that you could collect. 
or something that you had to build. Um, so what I mean by that is that, you know, typically if it's Pokemon, you have to build that Pokemon collection. There's things you can go after with it, right? Whether it be video games or watching a show, something you can kind of build a story, build a narrative. So that's, uh, that's kind of what, you know, childhood was like. Um, actually, before being in Cornwall, we grew up in a small town, a smaller town, even 500 people. So always kind of lived that small, small town life. Um, and uh, yeah, from there went to high school. And that's where things kind of really went off the rails. Um, I think that it was just such a, a huge shock to me going from such a small town into, you know, Cornwall's got about 60, 70,000 people. So nothing can compare to the major cities, but it was considered big for me at the time. Um, and once again, that's when, you know, uniforms started getting introduced and that was like, I was very against that. So things kind of went from bad to worse at that point. Um, I started skipping even more classes, started getting suspended even more often. And I think that, you know, a lot of the teachers and stuff always thought that I was a troublemaker because I just wanted to, you know, watch the world burn. And that wasn't it at all. I was just bored. You know, I had to sit in these 75 minute classes doing things I didn't want to do, um, learning things I didn't want to learn. And, you know, I think that just kind of fed the, the narrative. Interesting. It's interesting because I think if you speak, like, you know, I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs and being an entrepreneur myself, you know, a lot, a lot of that was said to entrepreneurs as kids. Like we couldn't sit still in these classrooms that were made to basically create armies of people to go work nine to five in corporations and factories. And it's obvious that that's not what, that's not what we're built to do. For sure. And, you know, I think one of the most frustrating things is the whole ADD thing. And it's only now looking back on it where, you know, I think I have a great mind for business. I think that, um, you know, the way that I think lends a lot to what I have to do on a day to day basis. It's definitely not saying that's the right way to think. And there's a lot of cons to it, but it definitely is, you know, being able to move from thing to thing and and have a lot of different ideas at any given time. To me, I don't think that that should be considered a disease or considered a condition. Like to me, that's just um, the way that you are and you can put yourself in specific situations to take advantage of that. So, you know, you look at, for example, if we look at Asperger's, right, we call it a condition and we say that, oh, you know, there's a mental illness, but then you go and look at someone like uh, Greta, who's out here changing the world and some of the best coders that I know are have Asperger's. So it's kind of like, why are we calling this a condition or an illness? or an affliction when really if you just take these individuals and put them in scenarios that they can the use right the way it's meant to be right then you know go after it so you know i always i always speak to that so i just kind of look laughing when they said add so coupling all that you know the one thing that i was always constant you know i had loving two loving parents you know i grew up with my mom um and she just raised me exactly how i needed to be raised um we didn't have a lot of money at all um so i grew up spending a lot of time outside um, but, uh, I think that's where a lot, I learned a lot and just understood that, you know, you are responsible for your own actions. Like you can do whatever you want, but you're gonna have to pay the price. Right. Actions and there's no have consequences. Exactly. There's no helicopter parents here to protect you or shelter you from any, uh, experiences whatsoever. And my dad lived in Ottawa and he took every advantage or any chance he could to try to just, you know, keep me healthy. Um, you know, he used to drive me from Cornwall to Ottawa three times a week for football practice. Um, so just things, you know, I, I had that support. So even though my social life and what was going on in school was super rocky, I always came home to, uh, you know, loving, loving parents, which, which helped a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So what was your very first job and what was the, the most important thing you learned on that first job? 
Um, yeah, my very first job was at Blockbuster. Um, so <laughs> I was You're showing your age right there <laughs> for sure. Yeah. You know what? It's funny because, um, once again, just being a huge gamer, I love movies. I still to this day, love movies. Um, Blockbuster was my perfect fit. I used to actually, I had a lot of friends that worked at Blockbuster. So I would actually just go hang out there, uh, while they were working and like help them put things away. So it's funny because once I finally became 16 or however old it was, um, I just kept begging because my friend's mom actually ran the, uh, the Blockbuster. So it was kind of like this big hope and this big wish that once I became of age that, you know, they would hire me looking back on it now, like being, you know, managing people, I would love to have some young kid who, as soon as he became old enough, be like, Oh, you want to come work for us by all means. But back then I didn't know that. Right. I thought I had to like really, you know, apply and be the right one. So that was a, a great job. Um, and I think what I learned from there, looking back on it now was that you gotta try to separate sometimes the things that you enjoy from work because my the thing I enjoyed the most was spending time at Blockbuster until I started working there and everything changed and I think that happens to a lot of people and that's why you know there's a lot of uh weight and a lot of um uh I guess a, a lot of accuracy into the statement you know do what you enjoy and find a job in something that you love but at the same time make sure it doesn't make you hate that and make sure that it's something that you got into because you love it and if you're sticking with it, it's because you love it. And it's not something you've completely flipped in this, you know, this evil beast that's bearing down on you. So I think that's one thing I learned, you know, working at Blockbuster back when I was 16. Yeah, I, I always like to say, you know, you can't monetize everything you love, right? Yeah. Because then it then it does exactly that. So for sure. Good point. And it is point. a blessing for the people that do find their, you know, find money Absolutely. in their passion. Like that is a blessing. Absolutely. And I think that that we should teach that a little bit more often as well, too, because I think everybody then is upset if they're not doing something they love. However, that is the norm. You know, I think we need to start really understanding that the people who get to do something they love every single day, that is such a blessing and such a gift. And it doesn't happen to everybody, which is okay. But if you can, you know, find that narrow road that leads you down to that, then by all means, go after it. Balance. It's all about balance. Yeah. So, okay. So your first job's at Blockbuster. You loved, uh, you love video games, you love movies. So what did you want to grow up to be? Um, so I wanted to be a bricklayer. I wanted to be a truck driver. Um, I have no real idea why. I think that when I was in high school, I didn't really have a concept of money. You know, I needed enough money to try to buy a video game every couple of months or, you know, maybe get some lunch or something like that. You don't really understand money when you're in high school, at least not, you know, back in the 90s. Um, you know, and I think that I remember hearing that, you know, bricklayers could work half the year and make enough to live and then they could take the winters off and I was like well sign me up for that that's less work that I have to do that sounds great right. um and then I think truck driving I've always been obsessed with cars and driving I love I could drive for hours and hours and hours I get so much thinking done so you're a road um, trip guy yeah absolutely like I love spending time in, in cars so I think that once again I was like okay you know if I have to spend time on the road might as well be a truck driver so those were the those were the things I wanted to do in early high school in late high school, I wanted to be a dentist. Um, so oh, you, you know, just ran, you just went from <laughs> yeah, one extreme I, to the other. High school was definitely the most, um, high school was definitely the most uh, interesting time of my life because one of the biggest things that ended up happening was that I had the biggest transition. So from being a kid who um, essentially 
didn't want to have anything to do with school, did not want to deal with teachers, didn't want to apply myself. Um, and then having these, you know, random, you know, job ambitions that just kind of dealt with, you know, lower impulses of like, hey, I want to work less and drive a lot all the way through to, you know, this crazy, these crazy transformative years I had in grade 11 and 12, when I kind of got my, you know, got my shit together and found some motivation and realized that, you know, I could pretty much achieve whatever I want to achieve as long as I put the work in for it. Um, by that time, that was the, that was the kid who graduated, you know, as an Ontario scholar um, and got into the University of Waterloo and wanted to be a dentist. So there's a, a lot of transition that was going on there. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. So, Okay, so you went from Blockbuster. I love this timeline. You went some. You went from Blockbuster to wanting to be a bricklayer and a truck driver to a dentist to getting into University of Waterloo. So from there, how like how did True Local come about? Like how did that get started? Yeah, so it's that's interesting. So lots happened. I got to university and you know uh, realized after year one that I wasn't going to be a dentist. <laughs> so it didn't take too long for me to realize that. <laughs> and then you know I think university life just set in. I didn't have any real focus. I still had three, four more years before I was graduating. I just wanted to have fun. Um, and it wasn't until I got into second year and I heard that Snapchat got offered three billion dollars by Facebook, and you know. To, to put that into context, at the time, I didn't even realize what a million dollars was, let alone a billion. And I definitely didn't understand how an app, which arguably in my eyes was just a toy, um, could be worth that much money. So right. I think that's what sort of struck my, you know, um, my understanding that you can kind of create your own future and create your own road. Um, that's what really hit me when I realized that there's no rule book for life. There's no guidebook for life. And don't forget, before university, you only follow a guidebook. You follow your parents' rules right. or you follow society's rules or your teacher's rules. And it's, if you do all the right things, you will be successful. There's no jumping from A to G or A to whatever. You gotta go from A to B to C to D and do all the right things. There's no way to quickly just jump right to Z or whatever you're trying to get to. And in university is where I started realizing that that's not the case. You are 100% responsible for your own success. You can manufacture your own success. You don't have to put um, this sort of traditional uh, milestone based approach to life, you want to get to a certain post that supersedes all of the steps in between, no problem, just work that much harder to get there or get be that clever or develop that sort of technology. So those were uh, some things that kind of started really stoking that founder fire, you know, that's kind of where I started being like, okay, this, if I can realize there's no guidebook, and I can create my own rules and create my own environment and create my own success, by starting a business, well, I'm going to do that. So that led to, you know, your spree of businesses. So I had two startups. Wait, no, it's spree. I want to know how many businesses, how many, how many, what was your failure rate? Uh, well, I guess 66%. So okay. I had two businesses before True Local that failed and then True Local did well. That's like real businesses. You know, in high school, I used to sell dollar store candy for $2. Right. So I like to think that that was a little bit of uh, a that foreshadowing. <laughs> it was definitely, and you know what, like it was like, that was what I was using to, you know, go to the pool on the weekends or go to the movies. So it was right. good. Um, but uh, yeah, so most of the businesses fail like everybody else. And I think that everybody has to go through a couple of failures before they get their successes. That's not to say you have to fail and props to everyone who got it on their first go. 
but um, the failures definitely lent well into making things easier with True Local. So that's kind of where the, the whole founder side of thing uh, of me came from, I, I like to think. And then when I graduated, I ended up working as a door-to-door meat salesman. And once again, couldn't tell you how I got into that. You know, my degree <laughs> ended up just being a book holder pretty much. And uh, the, you know, the guy who hired me, I still have so much respect for him, um, Joe Corrali, but he um, pretty much hired me on the spot. You know, he's like, talk really fast. You know, you might be good at this. Why don't we give it a go? So that was kind of uh, the rest is history at that point. Did door-to-door meat sales for four years and understood, started understanding that people really love these products. They want local products. They want value-added products. And when I talk about value-add, I'm talking about things like 100% grass-fed or pasture-raised or RWA, which is raised without antibiotics. But the business model from the biggest player in Canada made no sense. It was door-to-door. It was sign up for a year. It was sign this credit form. It was receive all that food at once. You know, a lot of things that just weren't conducive to making it easy for people to give this a shot. So me having this random background in technology and a little bit of experience, right? Because I did this two failed startups. I wouldn't even call it a background, maybe just like a little of experience. Um, but then having this deep knowledge of the industry I was trying to get into, it kind of just made for a really good one-two punch. And that's when True Local was born. Okay. So, so you're working with this guy for four years and you're seeing some, you know, you're seeing some gaps in his business model. So what would make you choose being an entrepreneur over continuing to be an employee? Yeah. Like I was just never going to be able to work for someone that I didn't think was going to be able to provide me with a ceiling that um, I felt comfortable with. And I think that as I continue to develop um, as an entrepreneur or even just an individual in general, um, I kept watching that ceiling get higher and higher. And I realized that this is gonna be based 100% on the work and efforts I put into it. And I'm gonna wanna cut corners here and there or completely restructure how things are done or make a quick U-turn and I don't like being put in a box where I've either got a cap on the ceiling or the walls are closing in on me because I have to do things a certain type of way. And that might have come back from high school when, you know, like I said, you know, all my teachers and a lot of people in the early days, because, uh, you know, I could go on and on about how much, you know, in the latter years of high school, my teachers did for me to kind of get me to where I'm at today. But in the early days, you know, all the people that didn't believe that, you know, I had a brain cell in my brain. Um, they just kind of would always say, if you don't do it this way and don't, you know, go to class and make sure that you're doing your grades, then you're doing it wrong. I feel like maybe that probably is, a, you know, imprinted on me. So to this day, I've always just want to do things my way. Um, I have a lot of respect for being able to bring really smart people around you because you can't do it alone. But just being able to have that control of who's around me and, and um, you know, just being able to take risks whenever I want, as long as I'm willing to accept those risks. I think all of those things don't lend really well to being an employee. Um, I just wanted to start building things for myself and that's kind of where it, where it went. Cool. So when did you know you had something special with this business? Like, were there any moments early on that sort of shook your confidence and then you were like, no, you know what, what I have here is really special. Um, honestly, from day one, from day one. Um, You were just just on it. You were on 100 day one. Yeah, for sure. You know, it was just, it was always special from the get-go. I I don't know if that's a bias thing. I don't know if that's, you know, unique to us. 
Um, but just from the get-go, you know, from the story of how it got started, from the people that we got involved, um, from the challenges that we somehow overcome to the similarities in other businesses when you listen to business books and you see the, that they're making the same dumb mistake or that we're making the same dumb mistakes they did that we thought were just unique to us um, to when you finally see that logo for the first time on a box to when you get that first customer review, like every step of the way, I've never had any doubts um, that this was going to be something special. And I like to think we still have a long way to go, but I, no matter how small or big we, no matter how small we were, or how big we get, I'll always think that, you know, true local had something special. And, and I think now we just have a little bit more, um, a little bit more, uh, that we can say about it, you know, four years into it. So tell me about those dumb mistakes you made. So yeah, tell- <laughs> <laughs> like, I'd like to hear, cause, uh, you know, it sounds like, you know, you, since you, you've had a 66% failure rate and then you've succeeded with, um, with true local, there's gotta, you've got to fucked up in true local somehow. Yeah, <laughs> so abs- tell me about that. Absolutely. Like tons of different ways. Um, I think that, uh, even just like, you know, in the first six months we got, you know, we put all of our money into this and spent half of that on, uh, boxes that ended up being <laughs> the wrong size. And the thing about starting a business is that when you make mistakes like that nowadays, it's okay because you got the resources, if you got the team, you can make mistakes, you can make more mistakes before bottoming out. But in the early days, the only difference really is that you don't have the resources, you don't have the team, and you definitely don't have the energy. So when you make mistakes, they hurt a lot more. And they, you know, you only have maybe two to three major mistakes you can make before getting completely screwed. So um, that was a huge one. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things. Ironically, when I talk about big mistakes, I usually talk about the previous startup, uh, one of them called Tell, where we actually got that off the ground quite a bit, got a product developed, and then I accidentally erased all of our uh, users. No! Yes. So that was tough. That was a tough one. Um, and that was hundred percent my fault. And, uh, that's one that, from that? You did. how did you recover? Like that was the failure. That was the, that, that was, was game that over. Was, that you was dead the company. Just like you that. did hundred percent. And you know, like I said, you spend a year, you know, scratching and biting and kicking and clawing to get to a certain point. And even then you're just holding on by a thread, you go and delete all your customers. That's the, that's yeah, that the nail thread in the just coffin. Broke. It was done. Yep. Wow. Patty done. <laughs> okay so so mark tell me are you sure because you know you've been you've been through a lot as an entrepreneur what would you say was your best piece of advice and what was your worst piece of advice um yeah i would say that the worst piece of advice is from anybody that like i don't uh whether it be respect or anybody that hasn't done what I'm doing or is trying to go where I'm going. I think that a lot of people love to give advice. Um, and I think a lot of it is critical advice, typically on lifestyle, work-life balance, priorities, you know, things like that. Um, I, I just don't take any of it from people that aren't in my shoes or that I love or that I respect. So I think any advice, and I think that I see it from a lot of people too, taking advice from people that don't have their best interest in their heart. Um, so that's when that's always kind of, you know, hit me. And then the best piece of advice I ever got was don't get attached to 200,000. And what I mean by that and the context behind it is that, you know, I was very fortunate and blessed. You know, I worked my way up in the job I was at before making almost $200,000 a year at 22. And um, this guy I met, you know, worth $100 million, he came up to me and said, you know, when are you going to start making some real money? And I was like offended. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm 22. I'm doing pretty well. He's like, yeah, you're right. But he's like, the thing is, 
that's the scariest number you're ever going to make because if you can't, if there are people out there who struggle to quit a $50,000 a year job or a $60,000 a year job or an $80,000 a year job to go build out their dreams and go build out um, their business and take those risks, how are you going to leave at 200,000 when you get used to that for too long? And that kind of really sat with me. Um, And I was like, wow, that's true. Like if I get, you know, even to 25 years old making this much money, I'm going to consider that making, you know, less than that is, you know, you can't do that. How am I going to live? So I think that was the best piece of advice I got because that's really what kind of kicked me into gear and made me want to make a change and, and push for the business. So. All right. Well, that's actually, that's, that's an excellent piece of advice. So don't get, don't get stuck on that 20 on that 200,000. Yeah. And I think just also, you know, looking at it um, once again, I think it's just the thing is just, it's not so much about the best piece of advice and the worst piece of advice. It's setting up like a, a framework for how you take advice because I, I like to take advice left, right, and center. I'm going to, um, yeah. So I take, I like to take advice left, right, and center. And, and I always look at it from the perspective of if there's people in your circle that you can trust and you respect and they're aligned with you, then take advice as much as possible. It's just, once again, like I was saying before, taking advice from people that may not have your best interest in mind or people that aren't walking your same, uh, your same path. Wow. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so 2020 has been interesting. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> so what have you learned this year? This year I've learned that you've got to absolutely as a founder and as an entrepreneur, make sure that you are expecting anything to happen at any time. I think that, you know, our generation, I just turned 30 um, of entrepreneurs and founders have never dealt with a crisis. You know, there was the crisis in 2008, but I don't know too, too many people at at this age were starting businesses back then. So we've been living in the golden years. The economy has just been improving. Um, Consumers are buying more. They're taking more chances on new technologies, new ways to buy new channels. Um, And we've never dealt with a crisis. And that's very unique to this point in history. And I think that if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that as we continue to do business over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, assume this is going to happen again. You know, we had two crises, one in 2008, one in 2020. I would say that's a long period without some sort of crisis. So expect these types of things every five to 10 years that could fundamentally disrupt your business and make sure you plan for that. Plan for it not only in how you're looking at your supply chain or your technology, but plan for it in how you're doing your contracts and your lease commitments and your financing and your loans. And uh, when you're looking at your cash flows, how much money you have in the bank, you need to be prepared for anything because this could have been, you know, earth shattering, uh, you know, uh, tidal waves could have been World War Three. It just so happened that it was a pandemic. So um, it could be anything. So I would say 2020 has taught me to be prepared. Oh, and prepared we have to be. So, Mark, what is the next big thing for you and your business? Yeah. So, you know, four years ago when we started the business, the whole focus was to solve the consumer problem of getting access to value added meat products. Two years ago, we realized that it's not just a consumer problem, it's also a supplier problem. And the supplier problem is that these suppliers are struggling to sell their products, um, especially online. So we started, uh, we launched True Local Connect, which allows uh, producers, farmers, butchers to actually have their own e-com shops. And it's on their website. It just gives them a way to sell D to C directly to consumers. Um, and then more recently, we've started realizing that, especially with all the, the media attention, the national supply chain has been having um, with the meat shortages and you know how the majority of products are consolidated to a few major players. 
you know, True Local's job and mission moving forward is to develop Canada's regional supply chains. So it's not just being the best in the world at connecting you to the source. It's not just trying to give more transparency on where food's coming from, but it's also making it so that it's just as easy to shop with a farmer who's an hour away as it is to order your groceries using Instacart. And the way that you do that is by developing regional supply chains. So allowing as many producers within a province as possible to have a place where people can browse for their products, but also build out the infrastructure, the technology, um, and the logistics to get that product to a customer um, in a timely manner. So our, our, our job and our goal is developing Canada's regional supply chains. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. So here's some, I'm, I'm going to get some, some more fun questions. Yep. Um, so what are three words you would like people to associate with you? Um, unapologetic. Um, unapologetic, um, self-aware and mutual respect. Okay. Those are good ones. Those are good ones. Okay. So what's the one thing you want to leave with our listeners? Like what's like, if things were to fall apart tomorrow, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, what just would be, what would you want them to know? Honestly, sounds cheesy and cliche, but you know, you were everything that is happening in your life is happening for a reason and you have all the power in the world to change it if you don't like it. I think that a lot of people kind of fit into this mold that, you know, whether it be their parents or their teachers or their friends or their spouse, you know, bang into their head to say that, hey, you've got to follow these particular steps and we kind of get used to that, but that's not the case at all. If you don't like what's going on in your life, then, you know, by all means, you have every single right and you have the power to change it. And if you love where you're at, then just understand that all the bad things that happened prior to you getting to where you're at, they all happen for a reason and they, you wouldn't be where you're at today if that didn't happen. So I think that that's, you know, the biggest thing that I like to leave with people is just, you know, anybody can do it. You know, any of the most successful entrepreneurs on the planet, it's not that they're that much, you know, there's a lot of them that have a lot of very unique and uh, exceptional skills. But I think like the most of us that are just out here trying to, you know, hustle our way into, you know, a life that we feel comfortable with and take care of our friends and family and put a cool team together. We're not smarter. You know, we don't have some sort of secret handbook. You know, there's no connections or networking that got us to where we're at today that you can't do. So I think that, you know, if that inspires even just one kid to try to go into entrepreneurship or business, then that's all I want to leave with people. Mark, what makes you bad for business? Um, I'm bad for business because I don't fit the mold of what a, uh, future executive or potential Canadian board, uh, director might be like, um, I love to speak my mind. I like to typically kind of go against the grain. I like to question things a lot. Um, you know, I like to swear a lot. Um, so I think a lot of those reasons make me pretty bad for business. (laughs) Fucking a. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so very much, Mark, for joining me today. Hey, no problem. Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. This has been another episode of your favorite unconventional and unfiltered business podcast, Bad for Business. I'll see you again next week where I'll be finding out the real stories behind the success of another Bad for Business entrepreneur. Be sure to connect with the Founders Fund community at foundersfund.ca.